Well, brothers and sisters, I would invite you to open up in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning. And as you were doing so, I would invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word. It's been a couple of weeks. Uh, Last week, Pastor Jacob from Reliance was here to share the Word with us. And the week before that, you will recall, was Reformation Sunday, and we looked in Galatians 3. And so it's been a couple of weeks since we have uh, settled back into working through 1 Timothy. And so we're going to pick up right where we left off a couple of weeks ago, and that is in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6. And I'm going to read in your hearing 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10. Let us give our attention now to the word of the Lord. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Please be seated. Uh, The Princess Bride's Inagio Montoya, he opined, as you no doubt know, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. I, I can't help but wonder how often that sort of thing actually plagues us, where we sort of use words and we use phrases, and sometimes we don't really know what they mean, where they came from. They're just sort of in the water. You might think of someone as an example who who tells you they're going to quit something and they're going to do so cold turkey. Where on earth did that come from? Perhaps one of you can tell me after the service. Or you've no doubt heard this phrase, I could care less, when of course the actual phrase is, I couldn't care less. The point is, it's not uncommon for words to just get thrown out there, and for you and I, whether intentionally or not, to sort of attach foreign meanings to these words and phrases. And as Christians, we're not immune to this sort of thing. Right? So, so we might fall into the trap, for example, of thinking that this building is the church. Or some Christians, they only associate worship with lights being lowered and a certain brand of music. I would also suggest that this sort of thing also happens when we think of pastors, leaders, ministers either through some experience we have had or or through pop culture, we sort of have this idea in our minds of, well, this is what a faithful minister is. This is what he should do. This is how he should sound. This is what he should look like. But church, it's very important that we weigh everything against the Word of God, including our ideas of what a faithful pastor is is. And so as we come to God's Word this morning, we're going to have the chance to do that. And maybe to say it a little bit better, we're going to be obligated to do that. 
And I say that because as we turn our attention back to 1 Timothy chapter 4 this morning, we're going to find ourselves confronted with what a faithful minister is. You remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we noted the qualifications for a biblical pastor. Well, now this morning, we're actually going to see, well, this is what a biblical pastor does. Beloved, what we're really going to see are the marks of a godly minister. And there's three of them before us this morning. Let me give them to you so that you have an idea of where we are going. First, we'll learn of the minister's Bible. Second, the minister's life. And then finally, the minister's hope. Now, when it comes to the minister's Bible, it's important to say this on the front end. Teaching the Word of God is to be his central responsibility. Mothers nurture their children. Police officers enforce the law. And ministers teach God's Word. It's just part of who they are. It's built into them. It's how God made them. So the minister is to be devoted to to the word of God. You see this here in verse 6, don't you? We read, If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus. So notice, how is a good servant or a faithful minister described? He is one who will put these things before the brothers. That is, he will preach the word of God to the church of God. That's what Paul means there by that phrase, put these things before the brothers. Just as the waiter will bring out the entree and put it before the patron, so it is the responsibility of the minister to put the word of God before the congregation. That's his job. It's not his only job, though. Not only will he preach the word, he will immerse himself in the word. As our passage goes on to say, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, catch this, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Now, it's worth pointing out that that verb there, being trained, its Greek root, it means to receive food, to be nourished. And so how is the minister to be nourished? What is his diet? Verse 6 again. The words of the faith and of the good doctrine. So minister and Christians alike, if you want to grow, do, do you as a Christian want to be strengthened? Then what God's word is putting in front of you this morning is this. Then you must immerse yourself in the word of God. This is particularly true of pastors, but it is equally true of Christians alike. It's not enough for us to simply be talking heads. It's not enough for a minister to simply teach the word of God. The minister and the church must feed upon the word of God. Maybe think of it this way. You you can pull a steak out of the fridge and you can throw it on the barbecue and it'll be good. Or you can marinate that steak overnight and then the next day pull it out and put it on the grill. Which is going to be better? Well, in the same way, Christian, you must marinate in the word of Christ. Or as verse 6 again calls it, the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. 
You are to be one who, who soaks it up, who, who marinates in it so you're taking in all of the, of the flavors. Just like that steak marinating in the fridge, so Christian, you are to be immersed in the Word of God. So church, I want you to see that when it comes to the minister's Bible, he will preach it, he will immerse himself in it, and he will also reject that which is contrary to it. Beginning in verse 7 now, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. And you ask, well, what what are these irreverent, silly myths? In short, it's just superstitious stuff. It's black cats. It's horoscopes. It's crystals. You see this sort of stuff out in the world all the time, don't you? You've got athletes that won't wash their socks for weeks on end because of some winning streak. And what happens is that same superstitious drivel, it has a way of coming in to the church, doesn't it? But what we should see is that the godly minister and the godly Christian, he has no time for this. And more than that, no desire for it. Why? Because he is too busy immersing himself in the word of God. This is the Christian. He is, she is content, verse 6, with the words of the faith and of the good doctrine. Rather than chasing unicorns and the so-called greener pastures of the latest fad, the, the mature Christian will have nothing to do with this nonsense. The faithful minister, he knows that faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. He knows the gospel to be infinitely glorious. And he knows the gospel to be infinitely glorious because the gospel points him to the infinitely glorious one, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so rather than outgrowing the gospel... The faithful minister will lead his own soul and the congregation, not away from the gospel, but deeper into the gospel. I would just remind you, this is why Paul left Timothy in Ephesus in the first place, right? He did so, 1 Timothy 1.3, to charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. This is how Timothy, and all of us, by the way, will wage the good warfare, 1 Timothy 1.18. We will do so by 1 Timothy 1.19, holding faith and a good conscience. We've already been warned, haven't we? Remember the warning that begins the chapter that we're in, 1 Timothy 4.1? Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times, some will depart from the faith. And so the warning is this, church, there are landmines. Well, where is safety then? Well, Christian, our only safety is found by planting our feet firmly upon the word of Christ. Christian, please hear me. You and I, we must come to a place where we are devoted to the truth. And we must recognize that in being devoted to the truth, that is where we find stability 
and maturity as Christians. It's in being committed to the absolute sufficiency of God's Word. That's how you and I avoid landmines. And the reason that we avoid the landmines by being devoted to the Word is because the Word testifies of Christ. So really what we're saying is if you, if you want to avoid the landmines, then you need to cling to the Word of God, which brings you to the Word made flesh. You cling to Christ. You cling to His sinless life, His substitutionary death, His bloody cross, His triumphant resurrection, and the fact that we are made right in God's sight by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, full stop. Full stop, because that is the message of Scripture, beloved. But as Spurgeon warned, there is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. Mark my words. When the words of the faith and of the good doctrine, again, verse 6, when the minister is no longer planting his flag there, when the Christian is no longer building his or her life on the word, Again, when the Bible has enough dust to write on it damnation, then you'd better believe that irreverent and silly myths are just around the corner. And that is because you cannot put down truth without taking up falsehood. I assure you, you grow bored with God and His glory and His gospel and His grace. You will very quickly be enchanted with anything and everything that glitters. This is why there are scores and scores of so-called churches that offer glory dust and exorcisms and prophetic words and traveling apostles and healing ministries. Do you know why that exists? It exists because people have grown bored. They have grown bored with God and with His Word. And when you give up on the Word, you will settle for all manner of counterfeits. What this means then is that in a lot of ways, the pulpit is the best way to take the pulse of a church. Generally speaking, if you have a healthy pulpit, you have a healthy church. And generally speaking, if you have an unhealthy pulpit, you have an unhealthy church. In a lot of ways, it's really that simple. What is the truth? What is the doctrine? What is being proclaimed? Because that will come to, for good or bad, seep into the life of the church. Again, thinking of Spurgeon, he saw all of this in his day. And he he warns both minister and congregation alike. Speaking of the pulpit, this is what Spurgeon says. The abounding of empty declamation and the absence of food for the soul will turn a pulpit into a box of bombast and inspire contempt instead of reverence. That's very Spurgeon-esque, of course. But you hear what Spurgeon is saying, don't you? 
You want to know one of the quickest ways to tell if the pulpit has been compromised is that there in the pulpit is a lack of the fear of God. There is a lack of reverence among the people of God. Spurgeon presses on. Unless we are instructive preachers and really feed the people, we may be great quoters of elegant poetry and mighty retailers of second-hand windbags. But we shall be like Nero of old, fiddling while Rome was burning and sending vessels to Alexandria to fetch sand for the arena while the populace starved for want of corn. And my friends, the tragic reality is that there are many who are starving. And they are starving because rather than the pulpit and the gathering of God's people being a buffet, in so many instances, it is turned into a circus. And the fault lies with the minister. The fault lies with the elders. The fault lies with the congregation for not demanding that their pastors feed them the word of God. You see, beloved, the minister's Bible is central to his calling. It is not the minister's job to entertain the goats, but to feed the sheep. But that's not his only calling. We have to be very clear, this is one of the minister's marks, but it's not the only mark. We must now also see his life. I want you to just feel the contrast, the sort of eruption that takes place in verse 7. Because Paul says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, right, see, you see the transition, the, the movement? Instead, rather, train yourself for godliness. He's telling Timothy, well, don't give in to this, but, but press on to that. Don't chase the carrot of, of myths and silly, irreverent things that are dangled out in front of you. But instead, he says, Timothy, pastor, minister, watch your life. He's saying, work hard, Christian. Work hard in pursuing godliness. Now, just a real quick sort of point of clarification. This is the trustworthy saying of verse 9. The one that we are told is deserving of full acceptance. So, so verse 9 is looking back to verses 7 and 8. So it's been a while, but you may remember we saw in 1 Timothy 1.15 this saying that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And in 1 Timothy 1.15, it is that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we see this same turn, the same phrase come up here. This same phrase that is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And you will remember that these statements then, they, they sort of succinctly summarize core Christian convictions. So in chapter 1, a core Christian conviction is that Christ came to save sinners. Praise God. Here in chapter 4, a core Christian conviction. As Christians, we must strive for godliness. And while that word strive might sound a bit intense, that really is the thrust of what is before us. I say that because, catch this, that word there in verse 7, the word that the ESV translates as train, 
We get our English word gymnasium from it. And originally, believe it or not, the word simply meant naked. You know why it meant naked? It meant naked because in the old school Greek athletic competitions, the athletes would participate without any clothing on. And they would do that because clothing would hinder them or get in the way of their various movements. That's how serious they took these things. So the word train originally carried with it the idea of exercising naked. Fast forward. Think today in our own world of an Olympic champion. What is his life like? Is it not one of total commitment and dedication? Everything that they do, it revolves around their training, doesn't it? What time they wake up, what they eat, when they eat it, how they spend their time. It's all subsumed under a greater goal, a greater purpose. Well, Christian... We are called to train too. But we are not training for the Olympics. Our aim is found at the end of verse 7. Godliness. We are told to train yourself for godliness. So, So listen up, godly minister and godly Christian and godly congregation. We compete not for a gold medal. But what we are competing for, what we are striving toward, what we are leaning into and pressing on toward is to be godliness. But that begs the question, well, what is godliness? Well, godliness is to have your head, heart, and hands given over to God. It means not just your actions, but also your attitudes are in His service. Not only that, but there is a a reverence and an awe that captivates your soul. The godly person, his heart is consumed by both a fear of and a love for God. This is something that completely reorients the very being of the Christian. Or, or maybe if we could try to, to just kind of boil it down to, to one sentence, one phrase, we might consider Psalm 16, verse 8. Psalm 16, verse 8 says this, I have set the Lord always before me. Brothers and sisters, that is godliness. It is to live your life, eyes wide open to the conscious and joyful and fearful and reverent and obedient attitude that we live quorum Deo. We live before the very face of God. And the point that Paul is making is that you have to strive for that attitude. 
You do have to work for it. Just like the dude that is at the gym each morning, just like the gal that is jogging each night, you have to train. Godliness is not something that just comes quote-unquote naturally. It doesn't happen by osmosis. You're not just going to wake up with it. Godliness is not something that you fall into. You know what you fall into? Sin. Godliness takes work. Like the salmon returning home to spawn. We too have to work hard and swim against the current and go upstream if we truly desire to be godly. Make no mistake about it, church, the the godliness, the life that Paul is speaking of here, it is not a static, stained glass type of godliness. It springs from a heart of blood and sweat and tears. A heart that truly longs to know Christ more fully and honor him more completely. Just as the athlete will make the sacrifice and not eat that and wake up early and put his body through torture, so the Christian must yield himself entirely to God, to his ways, to his wonders, to his will, to his word. I read the story recently of Lieutenant General William K. Harrison, a decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division. From what I understand, one of the most influential infantry divisions in all of World War II. At the ripe age of 20, and while still a cadet at West Point, Harrison began reading the Bible. He determined to read through the entire Old Testament annually and to read through the New Testament four times each year. And I should add that this is a commitment that he kept for the remainder of his life, and that included during his times of deployment. The days that he missed while in a foxhole exchanging fire, he made up for when he went back to base and was in the barracks. Consider this. Harrison began training himself for godliness at the age of 20, By the time he was 90, he had read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. That man bled Bible. Now I bring up Harrison for two reasons. One, because he demonstrates what Paul is getting at here in 1 Timothy 4. This was a man who trained himself for godliness. There was nothing casual about it. It took work and discipline and sacrifice and priorities. And I should add, it will take the same for you. This is true of the minister. This is true of the Christian. I would remind you, the dominant metaphor here is of training, not napping. But I bring up Harrison for a second reason. And that is because Harrison is a rebuke to so many Christians today who complain about not having enough time or being too busy. Brother and sister, I don't imagine any of you woke up this morning in a foxhole. We've got it all pretty good, relatively speaking. And lest I be misunderstood, I do not doubt your busyness. But I would say this. We all make time for what we deem most important in this life. And so I would ask you to consider this. 
Are you truly training yourself for godliness? Are you really hitting the weights, spiritually speaking? To which your flesh might be tempted to respond, but why? Why train yourself for godliness? And the answer is, because it's valuable. Verse 8 answers, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. You catch the gospel rhythm here? It's true that that bodily training or or physical training, right? Going to the gym, working out, running, lifting weights, all that stuff. It does have, verse 8, some value. It's got some. No one's disputing that. But it pales in comparison to the infinite value of spiritual training. Why, you ask? Well, because while physical training holds out the promise of you fitting into those pants, spiritual training holds out the promise of eternal life. That's the promise, right? And the promise of eternal life is really the promise of being with Christ, of seeing Christ, of dwelling with Christ, of enjoying Christ. And notice this. This is so important. This promise of knowing and dwelling and seeing Christ, it is not just for the future. It's not just an eternity thing. It holds out the promise here and now. Right now. As the end of verse 8 says, training yourself for godliness holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There's something here and now for godliness. Church, please hear me, because what I'm about to say is going to be a bit strong. But I trust that you know that it comes from a heart of love. We need to say that there is sin here. There is sin to be avoided. So, So just brace yourself and hear me out. It is true that being a lazy person is not virtuous. In fact, routinely, we are warned throughout the Proverbs to avoid the sluggard. So, so, so please hear me. Being a bum physically, that is not a good thing. But, neither is the Christian bro with big arms or the Christian gal with a flat tummy who says they have no time for the Word of God but somehow they have time to spend hours at the gym each week. If you or I can be physically fit, but not spiritually fit, then we are doing it wrong. If you are a Christian and you say that you have no time for God's word, no time for prayer, no time for scripture memorization, If you claim Christ, but you have no time for fasting or reading solid Christian books or no time to meditate on truth, but you do have time to somehow go to the gym and exercise and work out, then please hear me. You are in sin. It's that simple. You are in sin, and it must be repented of. Brothers and sisters, I'm not saying you can't be fit. That's not even remotely what I'm saying. 
Again, verse 8 tells us that bodily training is of some value. But godliness, verse 8, is of value in every way. And I would argue that this is especially true of the minister. Because the minister is an example for the congregation. And so his life must be set apart for Christ. Church, this is altogether important, especially given our day and age. What do I mean? Well, I mean that when it comes to pastors or elders or ministers or whatever you want to call them, we tend to be a people in American culture and Christianity who value charisma over character, style over sanctification, humor over holiness, speaking over seriousness. Utilitarianism runs so deep in our culture that we value things like effectiveness and power and showmanship, but we so quickly neglect conduct, attitude, and faithfulness. Isn't this one of the common denominators with all of the celebrity pastors that have fallen and no doubt will continue to fall? What do you see? When these things sort of come to light and there's some sort of digging and some sort of investigation, what quickly becomes apparent is that these pastors have glaring moral weaknesses and character traits that would disqualify them from even moving chairs in the sanctuary. But somehow, they are called to pastor congregations. What happens is that these vices, they are glossed over Because of the man's supposed giftedness and effectiveness. You see this all the time. But I would remind you, once again, that that is not where the New Testament places the accent. The New Testament tells us that character counts. Like, it really does. And that giftedness always takes a back seat to maturity. And the minister's life, believe it or not, is more important than his lips. That is something that American Christianity has forgotten. The question is, is he godly? Is his home in order? Is he worth following? Is he mature and does he bear the fruit of maturity? And if the answer to any of those questions is no, then he is not qualified to be a minister in Christ's church, regardless of how, quote-unquote, good his sermons are. And that is because ministers are more than talking heads. They are men whose lives are consecrated for Christ. Anything less than that, and you don't have a minister. You might have a preacher, but brothers and sisters, there is a vast difference between a preacher and a pastor. This is why the great Lion of Princeton, B.B. Warfield, the great academic, if there ever was an academic, he remarked, before and above being learned, a minister must be godly. So I would just ask you, Redeeming Grace, to pray for your pastors. 
to pray for our godliness, to pray for our lives. Now, I told you that there were three marks of the minister painted for us in this portrait. Thus far, we've seen his Bible and his life. Let's quickly now look at his hope, his hope. Verse 10 tells us, for to this end we toil and strive. You say, well, why are you toiling? Why are you striving? Is it for nothing? No. The minister's labors are not in vain. And dear Christian, I want to say this, neither are your labors in vain. Hear me well, your striving to grow in godliness, your sacrifice, your struggle, your fighting day in and day out to see and savor Christ more fully, you have to know it is not for nothing. There is a purpose to all of it. It really is leading somewhere. And you know where it's leading? It's leading to life. It's leading to immortality. And beloved, that is not just the minister's hope. That is each and every one of your hopes as well. Keep up with the context. Why does the minister train himself for godliness? Because, verse 10, we have our hope set on the living God. How how do we know that all of this isn't just an exercise in futility? Answer, because we serve not a dead God, but a living one. You and I, we serve the God of resurrection and life. And so you can know Christian, you can be utterly confident that your growing in grace here and now, it does not die with your funeral. Your body may be buried under six feet of dirt, but your godliness won't be. There is coming a day when Christ will return and he will resurrect the dead and their bodies will be joined to their spirits. And in that day, your godliness and my godliness, it will echo down throughout eternity. And we can rest in this. We can rest in these promises and these truths. Why? Because God through, verse, through Christ, verse 10, is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And don't miss this, because this is perhaps the most important thing that will be said this morning. Notice that Paul doesn't say, God is the Savior of all people, especially those who attain to a certain level of godliness and spiritual maturity. That is not what the passage says. The passage says that God is the Savior of those who believe, those who trust in Him, those who have committed themselves to Him, those who rely on those who rely upon his son. This is so important to highlight because you and I, we can be tempted to hear a sermon like this and we think, well, my salvation depends upon my willpower, my striving, my doing, my reaching a certain level of maturity in the Christian life. You might hear that, but that's not the case. The key that unlocks the door to Christ. The key that unlocks the door to God and heaven and forgiveness and eternal life. That key is faith and faith alone. So what you and I are called to do today, first and foremost, is to trust God. To rely upon Christ. To put all of your eggs in His basket. That is your hope. Beloved, He is your hope. We are called to rest in Christ and to rest in Christ alone. 
And then, out of a love for God and a love for Christ, then and only then, to train yourself for godliness. Let me be very clear here. It is not legalism to know that Christ shed his blood for you, that he forgave you all of your sins, that he imputed to you his righteousness, and that in him and by him and through him, you are right in God's sight. And then, in light of that good news, to want to then please God and grow in godliness. That's not legalism. Do you know what that is? The Christian life. That, that really is the Christian life. Begins with guilt. We are convicted over our sin. Then, by the empowering of the Holy Spirit, we come to trust Christ for our salvation. That's grace. And then, out of that grace, we desire as Christians to express gratitude. We really want to live lives that are pleasing in God's sight. That's the Christian life. And that's the Christian life only if you keep it in that order. It's guilt, grace, gratitude. It is not guilt, gratitude, and then maybe some grace if I get lucky. It's guilt, grace, gratitude. That is how the gospel works. And one of the quickest ways that you can short-circuit your Christian life is to think that the order is actually guilt, gratitude, and if I do enough job, a good enough job, then grace. So the minister's hope and the Christian's hope, none of it is in vain. Eternal life is ours. Grace comes to us in Christ, and brothers and sisters, it comes thick. That's the promise. That's the reason we toil and we strive and we work for godliness. Not because it is a reward but a gift. And in receiving the gift of Christ, in receiving the gift of grace and of the gospel, we then want to, because our hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit, we want to show our gratitude to God by doing what he says. Remember the end of verse 10. God is the Savior of all people. And as those who are saved, we can't help but be grateful. Now, speaking of verse 10's all people, we do need to talk about just very briefly what that means. And that is because at, verse, at first glance, verse 10 is sort of wonky. We read, For to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God. So far, so good. But then we read, God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. And so on first pass, it sort of gets the, it gives you the flavor of universalism. This erroneous idea that literally every single person goes to heaven, whether or not they have faith in Christ. So what do we do with this? Well, I want to be clear and acknowledge there is not one single reformed view or interpretation of this passage. 
What, what I want to offer before you this morning is simply the direction that I lean, okay? So here goes. It's important to note that we have seen this language from Paul before. And we've actually seen this language from Paul right here in 1 Timothy before. If you go back to 1 Timothy 2.1, we were instructed to pray for all people. And you will remember that if such a command is to be understood as literally every single on planet or every single person on planet Earth without exception, well, the only conclusion is that we are in grave sin because we have not, nor will we, pray for literally every single person on planet Earth. Then, a few verses later in 1 Timothy 2, we are told that God, our Savior, desires all people to be saved. That's 1 Timothy 2.4. And so we discovered that in that context, the best way to understand that is that God desires all kinds of people to be saved. It was all people without distinction, not all people without exception. So as we come here to 1 Timothy 4.10... How should we understand this idea of God being the Savior of all people, especially those who believe? We know that God doesn't speak with a forked tongue. We know that God's not going to contradict himself, especially not in the span of two chapters, right? This is one of our presuppositions. If we come to difficult texts, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is with us. And so how are we to understand this? I think given the way that 1 Timothy 2.1 and 1 Timothy 2.4 flesh themselves out, I think that Paul is saying basically the same thing here. God is not, I repeat, not the Savior of a select few. God is not the Savior of only the Jews. Or maybe just a a handful of those well-to-do Reformed Baptist type. No, the point is that God saves all those who look to Christ in faith. I think, I think that's the overarching thrust. It's good news. Don't, don't miss that. The, the point is that God saves all those who come to him through Christ. This is the minister's hope. This is the congregation's hope. This is the world's hope. So, so don't neuter this passage. Don't make the promise bad news. This is good news. Fair enough, you say. But we still have to do something with that little adverb, especially. What's up with that? Because it sort of gives the impression that people are saved, again, whether they believe in Christ or not. You see how someone might make that mistake, right? We're told that God is the Savior of all people. And apparently, it doesn't matter if you repent and trust Christ at all. So, why are you here this morning? Well, take a deep breath. That's not what Scripture teaches. Not here, not anywhere. The word especially... It can mean, and does mean in other places, to be precise, or in other words. In fact, verse 10 would be a lot clearer if we translated it something like this. God is the Savior of all people. That is to say, He is the Savior of all those who believe. In other words... That last phrase there, it is qualifying the previous statement, not poking holes in it. God saves one way and one way only. 
And that one way began with Adam, and it will continue until Christ returns. And that way is by faith, by simply trusting in the promises of God revealed in Christ for salvation. So, despite some of the initial ambiguity, I actually think that this passage is quite glorious. And it really rounds out what we have been saying this morning when it comes to the godly minister. So, here's how we can summarize. A godly minister is one who is devoted to the Word of God. In addition, his life is lived consistently before the Word of God. And his heart is resting safely in the promises of the Word of God. That's a a good picture of the faithful minister. And so to you as a church, I would offer two concluding exhortations. First, pray for your pastors. Pray for our Bibles, our lives, and our hopes. Pray that God would sustain us. And then second, follow us as we follow Christ. Congregation, be devoted to the Word. Train yourself for godliness. And set your hope on Christ. Let's pray together this morning. Our Father in heaven, we come rejoicing in the fact that you in Christ by your Spirit have worked a great salvation on our behalf. Not a potential salvation, but Christ has secured our eternal life by the giving up of his life. And so we pray that this grace, this good news, this gospel, that it would work in our hearts in such a way so that we would truly long to train ourselves for godliness. But don't let us get the cart before the horse. That's what we're prone to. We're prone to set everything aside and go, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. God, we can't. We can't. We need grace. We need the help of your spirit. We need the gospel to ring in our ears and to sustain our hearts. And so we pray that you would do that. Even now, as we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, our hearts assume that we come to the table of the Lord because we had a good week last week. Lord, we didn't have a good week last week. None of us had a good week. As we prepare to come to the table of the Lord, we come not looking to ourselves, but looking to Christ, he who is the author and finisher of our salvation. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.